the colonists were replaced very often by a new ruling class inherited from the colonial past. It is indeed very likely that where there has been a conflict in the past, there might be one in the future. If there were maybe more women in positions of power, more women presidents, more women prime ministers, more women parliamentarians, I think that would be a guarantee also to, to really protect the quality of life. Thinking Through is a podcast to discuss power dynamics, conflict transformation, international development, past development, the growth, social, political, and economic systems affecting people's lives with Leopoldine Geronimo. Today, I want to look into the aspect of conflict resolution processes that are not resulting in a long-lasting peace. And the debate that is evolving is how recurring conflicts are directly related to the colonial legacies, which independence processes did not do much to step up from their promise of quietness and prosperity in mainly the global South countries. Although we don't have much of similar wars between nations, we do have evidence tracks of wars caused mainly by a combination of nationalist and foreign interests while endangering lives of defenseless civilians. I'm joined with Alain Lamperer, a professor in the field of conflict resolution and coexistence and author of many publications. Amongst them is the First Move, a negotiator's companion, a book very much used in the Responsible Negotiation course, as well as the mediation by other means, both in multiple languages. Professor Lan, welcome, and let's discuss about the dilemmas of conflict transformation. But first, to set the stage of understanding, please share what you have been working on. So, Leo, I'm very pleased to, to be with you today and, um, and to talk about my, my passion for peace. Um, I've been working in the field of conflict resolution uh, since uh, 1995. I would say 25 years uh, of my career as a negotiation um, analyst, but also uh, as um, an expert in accompanying peace processes. And uh, thanks to my mentors at Harvard Law School, uh, Roger Fisher, Robert Manukin, who really uh, created that space where we could consider that negotiation is a great tool uh, to uh, appease conflicts. So I've worked um, in many uh, fields, but mostly in Africa. I started working there in 1995. I, I did a few programs on resource mobilization for health um, for the WHO, the World Health Organization, at the end of the 90s. One of my friends, Liz McClintock, contacted me because uh, the Arusha agreements were signed uh, between the protagonists of the Burundian conflict and Howard Wolpe, who was the former special envoy to the Great Lakes region for President Clinton, thought that it was important to accompany the peace agreement. So we, we launched the Burundi leadership training program with also colleagues uh, from Burundi, Fabian Sengimana, Eugenine Dorera. And the idea was really bring together the leaders who might not be sure that these peace agreements will stick, uh, put them together, build trust, 
provide some negotiation methods, also ask them to identify their problems, their major challenges, ask them to produce some diagnostic of these problems, determine themselves what the solutions are, and, and work towards um, the implementation of the peace agreement. I did the same in the uh, in the Congo, the De Democratic Republic of Congo, when the Sun City agreements were signed. And again, we really try to, to work with all the senior leaders there uh, to make sure that uh, the elections, the first democratic elections uh, would run peacefully and also the aftermath. And so that brought me um, a little later in my career, at that time, I was the director of a negotiation institute in France that brought me to, to become the director of the conflict resolution and coexistence program at Brandeis University. And, and also, I've worked during the last few, the last decade, mostly uh, in the Near East, working with uh, Palestinians and Israelis sometimes help them work across the divide between them, but also within each group, uh, supporting, for example, uh, Palestinians to overcome their division. And uh, more recently, I've been associated to the um, Global Executive Leadership Initiative of the UN uh, to, to train senior coordinators in the field uh, in negotiation techniques, but also teaching uh, for the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, humanitarian negotiation courses. Could you discuss why most peace processes fail to reach a complete conflict transformation for a coexistence environment? E even if I need to, to avoid uh, generalizing, because each conflict and each peace process uh, is specific, right? I can probably distinguish three cases and therefore three reasons why um, peace processes fail and therefore do not transform the, the conflict into uh, a sustainable coexistence situation. The first case is the worst case scenario, is that the peace process doesn't even start. It is stillborn uh, because it's impossible to get the belligerents to even negotiate together. They refuse to sit together, to negotiate at the same table. They can even refuse to talk with um, the support of an intermediary, of a mediator. If you think of what happened in the Syrian war, even if at the end one party prevailed, we could say that there is no sustainable peace because the talks themselves, the Geneva talks in, in question, uh, didn't uh, reach an agreement. It was even impossible for the different belligerents, for the people to sit at the same time, to consider the other side as worth talking to. Uh, they, they prefer to fight them than to talk to them. So I think that the first reason sometimes why process fail is that it's not even possible to get um, the belligerents at the, at the table. I think there is a second case. Parties agree to sit together directly or indirectly with a mediator. So this is already a progress. It's a progress because there is a process among people. And there is at least some process put in motion. But this is really like a peace process in a very strict sense. Because even if parties talk to each other, even if they make demands are often positional, they use the situation on the battlefield to put pressure on um, the, the talks, and sometimes they don't even reach an agreement. So I think that um, here we are with a second case, 
A second reason why the peace process doesn't work, it's because parties are just not even able to to agree. And so you have um, either, it's not a sustainable peace, it's more like um, a truce between uh, hostilities. If you think about even the peace process between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, they've been in conflict for decades. Cyprus has been divided since 1974 and talks in one way or another have failed. The Annan plan was agreed upon by one of the parties, but not by the other. So that's why I'm saying it's not really the peace we have in mind. It's not positive peace. It's just um, the silence of weapons. Uh, there is no real reconciliation or, or transformation uh, of the conflict. In the case of Cyprus, no peace agreement, no reunification. So here, I think that um, the problem is that the negotiations fail to deliver. The, the process doesn't yield a long-term solution. The problem doesn't get solved. Uh, at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, many of us work to support parties so that they can negotiate more constructively, so that they can develop mutually uh, satisfactory agreements, be more constructive when, when they talk to each other, but also when they listen to each other. So sometimes we could support parties who are in a negotiation process and where the process has failed so far, it could sometimes be unblocked, as it was the case in uh, Colombia, for example, recently. But there is a third case that I want to talk about, maybe a little more, because that's not necessarily on our map. In this case, the, the peace process actually has led to a peace agreement that is signed by the parties, so apparently we are good to go, right? Negotiation has succeeded. The process seems finished. The people are satisfied. The peace agreement seems to have solved the problems. And, and then we enter what we call the post-conflict stage. But I think that it is not necessarily the right expression. I'll come to that in a second. If you think of parties signing an agreement like Yasser Arafat and Itzhak Rabin signing the peace between Palestinians and Israelis, between the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the government of Israel, at least it looked like they put an end to the state of war between the two sides in 1993. The, the peace, the Oslo process uh, led to the Oslo Accords and it looked like negotiation had succeeded. But, and that's even in this case, we could see that the peace process and accords failed because it backfired. Uh, it was on the right track. It was signed, but here the negotiation failed in the implementation stage. And it happens so often, right? There is a, a terrible blow, like in, in the Oslo process, the assassination of Itzhak Rabin, but it could be also a terrorist attack or sometimes even a misinterpretation of the agreement. The whole post-peace uh, process collapses in a phase where we shouldn't call it a post-conflict stage because they, the parties are still in conflict with the other side, even if they sign a deal. But we, sh we should call this a post-settlement phase, right? Personally, I have worked uh, on this post-settlement stage in the African Great Lakes region, in Burundi, after the Arusha Agreement, and in the, and in the DR Congo, after the Sun City Agreement. We worked with Howard Wolpe, who was the former special envoy for uh, President Clinton in the Great Lakes region, and then later on, the special advisor of President Obama. Uh, so uh, Howard was uh, aware as a diplomat that it is not enough for the, pro the peace process to lead to an agreement. 
it's not enough to to even sign it it's not enough to have words you need to transform transform these words of peace into the reality of peace um i just i just published actually a book in french on the power of mediation against civil war where i try to detail what we could do here because it looks like uh, if we do not uh, a process fails the reason a process fails sometimes it's because we do not pay enough attention to what happens after it is signed how do we help former belligerents to rebuild a relationship because there is no trust between them how do we leverage empathy right so that each side can really understand um, what the other is saying and convince them uh, so that it's there is a real bridge uh, in the minds of people between the two sides it's also a, a, an important moment when we we also can look at the deep roots of conflict the issues of social injustice or underdevelopment which often will lead to returning to war between the sides there is often power exclusion of some minorities some uh, land issues impunity against past crimes lack of access to education so i i just give all of these examples because sometimes peace agreement will be power sharing agreements but they will not look at the the deep roots of conflict i think that it's part of the post settlement process to really start looking at these um uh, deep roots uh, of conflict this um, makes me um, wonder that how much does history of power dynamics play a role in setting limits for ownership of these peace processes? This is such an important question. Um, often, I, I would say that parties inherit a very heavy past, a burden that is carried on from one generation to the other. Um, one clan, one family hated that other family in the same village, and already the grandfather hated the grandfather, a clan, another clan, a region, another region. I think that it is often the case that power dynamics are transferred from one generation to the next. That's also why I believe it. conflict is not a matter simply of positive, integrative uh, psychology. It's also an issue of positive, inclusive sociology. We really need to look at groups, not simply at individuals. Uh, let, let me give you an example in Burundi and the DR Congo. The colonial power of Belgium used an ethnic minority in different places, by the way, where they were um, ruling. Uh, they use a, an ethnic minority to rule over an ethnic majority. They will confer privileges to the former in order to dominate uh, the latter. They will give access to education or to military uh, positions to that minority to better rule the majority. Uh, and, and of course, this will be transmitted, this will be transferred even after the independence. So what I mean is that the power dynamics that was put in place, for example, by the um, colonial power of Belgium, and, and this is not unique to Belgium, France or Britain uh, did exactly the same where they were the colonial power in place. But so when this power dynamic was in place, hatred, resentment, and of course, social injustice and exclusion were also put in place. And, and the independence in many countries, didn't overcome that divide. The system that was put in place 
was just uh, perpetuated. The colonists were replaced very often by a new ruling class inherited from the colonial past. The ruling class concentrated the political, the economic and the military power. And, and I think it was a very clever way of continuing colonialism by proxy. It was and, and still is quite clever because um, I would say that some major, even corporations, will favor some elites in some countries that they can continue to influence, and that will help them keep uh, their hands on resources, uh, raw materials, for example. And that's why I was saying that it is a peace process cannot stay at the surface of things. It's not simply a matter of changing individuals. And it's not even simply a matter of power sharing by the, the ruling class, right? Um, I think there is a need to deal, uh, of course, with um, some important reforms like demobilization, disarmament and reintegration to civil uh, life, right? What we call DDR in our field or put in place security sector reforms. But this is not enough because we need to go also tackle issues of social justice. There is no, there will be no peace without justice. So there is no real peace, sustainable peace without development, for example. So you were asking a question also about the ownership of peace, ownership of peace accords. Well, that should not be limited to those who will benefit after the elections by being the new rulers. It should really empower the people who are most affected by conflict, those who are at the bottom of the pyramid. It should also benefit um, the youth that is also in many countries left on the side or women who are also so, so many times affected by conflict. So what I'm saying is sometimes peace accords are not necessarily looking for a more just society. We'll say, well, just organize elections and everything is done. Make sure that the elections are done as peacefully as possible and that's it. Well, that's for me, that's not sustainable peace. This is just a situation if the deep roots of conflict have never been addressed. It's just a situation that will lead to um, relapse uh, and, and the, the war will very likely resume in that situation. That sounds that it builds a kind of, um, a, it perpetuates a recurrence of conflicts because the way I'm, I'm reading from your lines is that it, it's like a theater performance that the parties come, sign the agreements, but then all of a sudden the conflicts um, continue. Uh, we, we see that in, in most of the countries, you have mentioned some of them, but I'm looking at Burkina Faso. Um, now we have the situation in uh, Ethiopia. We do have the situation in Sudan. And, and then, uh, of course, there is Europe with Belarus uh, in a different context. It looks like the world does not learn from the evolution of um, the system of peace building processes. But now, what reflections to make of why most violent conflicts reoccur in the same regions? Well, if you never cope with the roots of conflict, the same causes will provoke the same effects. Um, and, and that's... Um, uh, sometimes we define effectiveness, right, or lack of effectiveness, I should say, by the fact that we think that by doing always the same thing, what you call the theater piece, right? You're right. It's a theater performance by always repeating the same theater. 
we expect different results, but that's that's kind of wishful thinking. Um, it is indeed very likely that where there has been a conflict in the past, there might be one in the future. And and by the way, this was exactly the same and true in Europe for hundreds of years. So I think that has nothing to do in particular with one specific region. I think that if we look at Europe, it was the theater of that performance you described. Nations did not stop waging war and then making peace. And then a few years later or decades later, the same nations were at war or the same regions were at war again with each other. So let's let's take the example of France and Germany. And I often take that example that at some point you need to really stop this dynamic, this power dynamic, when once it's one side that is winning and, uh, and then next is the other side, but then it continues forever and ever in what uh, the philosopher Hegel um, described as the dialectic of the, the master and the slave. So Germany and France, I don't even need to go back to the 17th century and the 30 years war, but think about the Napoleonic Wars where the French won, but then lost between 1806 and 1815. Then Germany won in 1870. It waged another war in 1914 that it lost in 1918. And of course, as we know, a, a last one in 1939 that led to the capitulation of 1945. So it, it could have continued like that. We could have had a, a third world war, maybe uh, a few years later, if there had not been the courage the intelligence of many people in power circles to say we need to put an end to nationalism, for example, and we need to create um, structures to put an end to these ongoing cycles of violence and truces. See, I don't call it peace. It was just a period of time between two wars. Um, there were the Nuremberg trials that really showed the horrors of nationalism and racism. The Marshall Plan said we don't want an entire nation or all the nations of Europe that had collapsed to be in economic recession. So the Marshall Plan was fantastic in that sense. But I think that beyond these issues and the rebuilding of democracy, for example, in Germany, I think that what really made a difference is Jean Monnet, who built with a, a lot of people who were future minded. They were really thinking about the future of the next generation. They, they created the European institution, the European common market that became the European Union. And, and still today, this is the best guarantee for peace and security in all Europe because it is fighting the theater of nationalist performance. But that could be somewhere else is the use of ethnic divisions, right? That, that's what you see. So when people and often when people despair, are in despair, they say we will never have peace in that region. We'll never have peace between these two ethnic groups. I always give them the example of France and Germany because there was so much hatred. The way my mother was talking about Germany or Germans, I can't even say it to you what she would say. But I give that example to say that it took a generation to really move from the French and the Germans are the best enemies of the world to become and for them to become the best allies in the world if not the best neighbors or friends in, in the European Union. There is something extraordinary in this Franco-German alliance. I said it's as if maybe in 50 years, 
there was a Palestinian-Israeli alliance, whatever form, institutional form it has, and people from Israel or Palestine will say, why did it take decades for mothers and or fathers, and it's probably more fathers than mothers, by the way, why did it take so much time for them to realize we could do better in terms of economic prosperity, access to education? So I think that there is so much that can be learned, not simply by the failures of peace, but by the success of peace. Let's also look at where it worked, why it worked. And I think that at the end, if peace is working, Suddenly, the peasants can can uh, sell their crops. The merchants can can do trade. The kids can be in the street. No one is afraid of being killed. If we think about this, this is the normal joy of life. Right? It's it's so obviously uh, what we need to do. But but again, that's why I love this this uh, quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. It's not simply a matter of loving peace. She says, we all believe in peace, but, but she adds, we need to work at peace. And you see here, there are economic infrastructures that are put in place. There are institutional bridges, educational uh, opportunities. And for me, this is like the, the foundation of development that will make peace more sustainable than just political uh, accords or peace agreements. I'm, I'm glad um, you also pointed that uh, that aspect. Before my last question, there is a, a sideline question I would like to follow up from what you were just presenting. You said um, most of the conflicts take place, and by the way, it's mainly men more than women. I would really appreciate if you could elaborate just on that aspect. Why is mostly men uh, fighting wars, which I would add into the question, af mostly affect women and elderly, all the other gender groups? I remember when I first read this play by this Greek Uh, playwriter Aristophany called Lysistrata because it's taking place in ancient Greece, right? And it's a comedy, but it's a comedy that is saying a lot about the problems that men have. It's probably a testosterone problem. But in that play, in Lysistrata, the women of Greece are fed up with their men from the different cities to always be at war with each other. So they said, as women, we need to put an end to that craziness of angry men. And so they decide that the only way of stopping their men is to uh, tell their husbands that they will not make love to them anymore. So it's a comedy. But in a way, you we could see already in ancient Greece that there was an awareness that men tend to wage wars Whereas women also see, I'm not saying that fathers don't feel the sadness of losing their, their sons, but the, the mothers who give birth see the value of life that sometimes is lost uh, in, in men's minds. So uh, still today, I think that if there were maybe more women in positions of power, more women presidents, more women prime ministers, more women parliamentarians, I think that would be a guarantee also to, to really protect uh, the quality of life. And, and, and the first human right is security, is the absence of war and, and dedicating all of these economic resources from 
machine guns, rifles, bombs, planes, tanks, to areas of true development. There's a, a French philosopher who said that women are the future of men. Well, certainly, if there were more women in, in powers, positions of power, maybe we would have less uh, of these issues. Well, uh, that takes us for the last question. Uh, how could the academia play a role in disrupting the narratives for integrated peace and conflict studies? I read recently that the progress of medicine in my lifetime has been more than the progress of medicine before I was even born. So the last 50 years have brought a lot of new concepts, new tools, new vaccines, new medicine, etc. Well, I think this is also true for the field of peace studies. We, we start knowing more and more why peace processes succeed or fail. Um, we know that... Um, There's a lot of work that can be done to build the ownership of peace processes, to make it not simply a matter of the elite, but also the leaders and uh, everyone in a society. So I'm actually amazed by how many master degrees there are in conflict resolution and peace studies. That, that also shows that a lot of wonderful members of the young generation, they know that this is an important part Of, of making life worthwhile. Uh, you know, I, as, as I was thinking about our, our talk today, I, I, I searched uh, that the first perpetual peace was actually declared in 1474 by eight Swiss cantons and the Duke Sigismund of Austria. You know, I didn't know that. I just, I, I must be honest here. But what I'm saying is that the idea we need to have perpetual peace, positive peace, Sustainable peace is not new, 1474. So the field got it right. And of course, wars continued in Europe. So sometimes ideas or what's happening in, in the young generation take a lot of time to crystallize. Ideas are faster than the reality and probably the European institutions have conferred an awareness of how we need to make it happen and the fact that it's happening in the reality. I think that we are ready to outlaw wars. Uh, I think this is something that we should all say. We will never be the first one to go for war. Uh, is it enough afterwards that they wouldn't do it? Well, it depends on their governments. But the same way you have these rules of a humanitarian law to protect population and civilians, I think that we should. In, you see, in, in a normal state, why do we need Even the military, there's only one country in the world without the military, and it's Costa Rica. Do we really need all of these resources to the military? Do we really need thousands of nuclear bombs? I, I think this is absurd. This is absolutely stupid. So I'm not, an, I'm not idealistic here. I'm saying that we need to plant the seeds of another narrative that what we need now is to use all of these resources for climate change, for education. And, uh, and I think that we need to start really build a, a more global alliance for this. And I think that organizations like the European Union, but also maybe the African Union, that there are regional institutions that can also disrupt some of these uh, narratives. So I'm, I'm, it looks like I am um, optimistic. Well, I, I'm aware that Ro Rome was not built in one day, so peace will not be built in one day. 
But I think we need to start now with concrete baby steps. And, and I think also we need peace professionals for centuries. Medicine was done by amateurs, by people who didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to, to do, to really cure people when they were sick. I think wars are sickness of societies. And so, you know, in 1716, Calier, who was a diplomat for Louis XIV, said, listen, apparently when you go to war, you prepare for war, you, you train for war, you do all of this. So he said, why would it be that if you want to be to wage peace, if you want to be good at peace, if you, why wouldn't you train negotiators the same way? So you see what I'm saying is that more and more now, we start knowing how what are the ingredients for peace? So the more we understand conflict and its causes, the more we could put in place the strategies of intervention and the more it can be owned by the people over time. So I think that each generation needs to bring its contribution and, and, uh, and we need to be better and better at working at peace, as Eleanor Roosevelt said. Any last remarks that you would like to share, which will help us close the reflection about uh, the dilemmas of conflict transformation and power dynamics? Y yes, I, I would like to, to, we were talking about the roles, the role that men could be playing, men, I mean, with testosterone, right? With their, sometimes their bad anger or hatred. Um, I was thinking that we, in all programs of conflict resolution, we often talk about outer peace. How does this nation get along with this other nation? How does that ethnic group will build reconciliation with this other group? So that's outer peace. It's peace out there. But I think that one of the great resources we have, we have as human beings is our inner peace. It's a, it's a very Buddhist end of, of our talk together. But I feel that if each one of us had two ambitions, one, to build inner peace, to be at peace with oneself, not to be struggling so much, not to be in all of these negative thoughts, in all of these anger or fear. So if we were better at peace with in ourselves, right? I think that would help us be more compassionate with others and at building uh, the outer peace. So peace studies is very much about the outer peace, the peace in the world, right? The peace in, in societies. But I believe that if we have not resolved, if and if we don't resolve, more effectively, or inner conflicts. I think it is extremely hard to be doing it on the outside. So we really need to reconcile both inner peace and outer peace. And um, yes, we, we see that the people who are in that situations of war, and especially at the leaders who are, who are responsible for that, they need to really look at their own contribution and their own anger. Where does that come from? Why do they believe that the best way of, of living this short life is to put so much energy at trying to get rid of someone else, whereas they would be much better off working with them 
towards that peace. They, they would be happier for themselves and happier for both. So I think that inner peace and outer peace are, are so linked. And even in our peace study programs, we need to resolve these inner conflicts to be better at solving these outer conflicts. I will let you go. Thank you, Leo. It was a real pleasure to, to be with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking Through is a podcast to discuss power dynamics, conflict transformation, international development, post development, the growth, social, political, and economic systems affecting people's lives with Leopoldine Geronimo. Thank you.